0: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your faithful host, Sourdough, coming at you from our studios here in Los Angeles. Boy, do we have a great show for you today. And it's brought to you by our friends at Hijinx PR here in Los Angeles. Hijinx is fantastic PR agency for artists. And they were instrumental in bringing our guest to the studio today. So I am thrilled to have the one and only Camille Rose Garcia here in the studio. Actually, online, we were talking remotely, to be fair, to be honest. Camille calling in from her studio tucked away in the woods of the Pacific Northwest and me here down in the City of Angels, and we chop it up. This is a great episode. I think we solve all the world's problems, but as you may know, you probably know, you should know. If you don't know, shame on you. Camille Rose Garcia is a OG artist, incredible person, and I am so grateful to have her on the show today. She's born in 1970 here in L.A., She's the child of a Mexican activist filmmaker father and a muralist painter mother. She apprenticed at age 14, working on murals with her mom while growing up in the suburbs of Orange County, visiting Disneyland and going to punk shows with her other just disenchanted friends. Garcia's layered broken narrative paintings of wasteland fairy tales are influenced by William Burroughs cut up writings and surrealist films, as well as vintage Disney and Fleischer cartoons acting as critical commentaries on the failures of capitalist utopias blending nostalgic pop culture references with a satirical slant on modern society. Camille's work has been displayed internationally and featured in numerous magazines, including *Juxtapose*, rolling stone and modern painter. She's been included in the collections at the Los Angeles County museum of art, the resident collection, the San Jose museum of art, which held a retrospective of her work entitled tragic kingdom. Garcia's got some books, man. This artist is prolific. She had a New York Times bestseller, The Illustrated Alice in Wonderland, published by HarperCollins, and her newest book, The Cabinet of Dr. Decay, a surrealist book she wrote and illustrated, published by Sympathetic Press. So without further ado, let's get into this episode, because I truly enjoyed talking to Camille, and I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from Camille. So let's get the show on the road. I'll shut up and we'll get this going. And without further ado, here's the one and only Camille Rose Garcia. Camille Rose Garcia, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's
0: good to be here. Oh man, you're classing up the joint. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on.
1: Well, I'll quote my dad, uh, still fooling him is one of his... (laughs) expressions. (laughs)
0: Well, you know, it's funny that you mentioned your dad right away because I actually wanted to chat about your parents a little bit because in your bio, you well, by the way, when we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? I mean, we stand on the shoulders of our parents and the fact that your parents seem to be, at least from what I've read, pretty, you know, well, whether we like it or not, our parents are always influential. But your mom, your, your dad was an activist filmmaker, correct? And your mom was a muralist. I mean, you come by your artistic chops very legitimately, and I want to honor them. And I wasn't planning on getting into this right out of the gate, but you mentioned your dad. So let's spend a few minutes. Yesterday was Father's Day. I mean, let's honor your parents a little bit here. I mean, who were they and how did they make you who you are?
1: Oh, you know, thank you. I love this cuz my dad passed away in 2009. So, every Father's Day, it's like, oh man, I wish he was kind of still around sure. to see what's going on or give me advice. But yeah, on both sides, the creative juice is pretty strong. My dad was born in Arizona, uh Mexican American. His mom and dad were originally from Northern Mexico, Sonora, kind of before there was even a border there. And he is Yaqui Indian and Mexican. And he basically grew up pretty poor, grew up in the barrios. And then they moved to LA and he grew up in Lincoln Heights, which is, you know, East LA. Mm -hmm. And ended up going to art school in San Francisco. And that's where he met my mom. She ended up going to art school too in San Francisco. And my mom comes from like a big family, seven brothers and sisters all kind of writers, creative types. And they did like a back to the land thing in the 50s where they moved from Los Angeles up to Northern California and lived off grid in a cabin with no electricity. (laughs) You know, the whole thing. And they grew up really, really poor as well, but they all went to college They all got an education. That was pretty important to them. But to dip like a little further back on my mom's side... My great-great-grandfather, Xavier Lardieu, actually, he was French, lived in France, and he helped design the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Fun fact. Yeah. And his wife, needlework was her thing, and she helped repair tapestries at the Louvre in Paris. So then he came over. And immigrated through Canada and ended up in LA and ended up building quite a number of beautiful buildings in Los Angeles during like the very beginning, you know, the thirties, you know, of like the Hollywood Regency kind of style, you know, Mm -hmm. and one of the only surviving buildings that he designed is actually the Resnick mansion, which I don't know if you've heard of the Resnicks, but they have built a pavilion at LACMA. Right. And... Yeah. Like he built that house and it's still standing. And yeah. So that's my mom's side. And then my dad's side, my grandma, my nana, his mother, she was like one of the first female disc jockeys in Arizona back in the day. And she's like a full on storyteller. Like up until she was a hundred, she was telling the stories. So he kind of, I don't know if you got that from her with filmmaking. So it's kind of like on that side is storytelling. And on my mom's side, it's very like people have always sort of drawn and been draftsmen and creative in that way. So, yeah, they met in San Francisco in the late 60s. And he was actually, it was kind of like around, they were drafting for the Vietnam War and they decided to go into the Peace Corps in Peru. And they lived there for about three years. and. Then he was recruited into the CIA.
0: Really? Ooh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is declassified now. But I don't know a lot about it. My mom never knew. And I only really found out by accident years later. And I had like one conversation with him at Musso and Frank's. We would go to dinner (laughs) once a month or so. And he had a few glasses of wine. And I asked him. Were you actually in the CIA? And he was kind of shocked because he didn't know that I knew or how I knew. And man, he told me some stories. And you know, he's a storyteller, so I don't know if they're true or not, the stories he told me.
0: But you know, one was like
1: Yeah, I was like hunting Joseph Mengele at some boathouse in Argentina. I don't know, man. There's some crazy stuff there. So apparently they paid for him to go to film school at UCLA after that because he was doing sort of like reconnaissance films for them. (laughs) Anyway, so my mom, he was doing this in Peru. My mom thought he would just was taking these trips to go vaccinate bulls.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was was bull, all right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I thought he was like off vaccinating bulls. So, um, (laughs) yeah. And then they got back. Yeah. And then me and my sister came into being and yeah, my parents divorced. So I saw my dad, he was in my life, but I was raised by a single mom. And she went to art school in the late sixties and she had male professors that told her, you know, women just they don't make very good painters. So she kind of gave up on it. And then after they were divorced, she was like, Well, I have to make a living and she got into doing mural work and sign painting, that kind of thing, and ran her own business. And that sustained her. So I started working with her, I guess, when I was about 14 or 15. So I learned a lot from her, like mixing colors and how to paint fast, (laughs) how to paint at 6 a.m., that kind of thing. So I ended up going to art school after high school, and I already knew a lot from both sides by then. Yeah.
0: How old were you when you first remember thinking to yourself, I'm an artist?
1: That's a funny question because I feel like it kind of popped out of the room like that. I oh, yeah. was like as a child, I was really obsessed with cartoons, with animation, and would watch, you know, all the Warner Brothers, Walt Disney, you know, all the, the classic movies, Snow White, Pinocchio, Bambi. And from the get-go, and I think because my dad was a filmmaker. I just thought, oh, okay, I want to be like Walt Disney. I want to make those little things that move. And I want to make a whole land that people can come to. I had all these ideas, you know? (laughs) And then, you know, that was like my five-year-old dreams. And then you kind of get older and it's like, all right, I got to like tone it down. or I got to (laughs) like sort of refine and simplify because I don't have like a giant inheritance to build a uh, theme park with. (laughs) So um, we're going to have to like get those dreams in line.
0: Well, and you in your world is so distinctive. I mean, it's an incredible universe that you've seemingly created and you know, and I'm not going to front I'm not going to act like I'm some deep expert in your body of work, but I'm just saying I've known about you for years and have observed you from afar, and I just have always loved just the distinctive vision that you have.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, again, it's sort of a combination of growing up with those cartoons and animation. But I also, I collected a lot of books when I was little and storybooks, fairy tale books, anything illustrated. I mean, Dr. Seuss was like right up there. And I loved the idea of him, especially he kind of would create his own universe that was unlike any other universe, And I kind of like the idea that you could create your own reality and then sort of live in it and manifest it. I just thought that's what we were supposed to do as humans, you know? (laughs) And then you get a little older and it's like, oh yeah, no, the world is much more basic in its imagination of what we could be than I thought it ever was.
0: Yeah. That's sort of the curse that artists have, right? Like it turns out like we live in such a one-dimensional world, seemingly, when some of us sort of see technicolor in three dimensions, maybe four dimensions, and we're just so bored with the conventional status quo. It's like so disappointing when we start to think about what we're truly capable of, and yet we're not living up to our potential. It's just so frustrating.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think that's like, I I take the act of creating very seriously because I feel like, As much as it's sort of viewed in this society as kind of a frivolous, like entertainment thing in terms of if you think of music, books, film, art, our culture really views those things as this kind of fun thing you do on your day off to be entertained or not bored. And really, to me, it's kind of like you're tapping into the creative potential of the universe and you're becoming part of that process. And to me, that's really fascinating, the fact that we have that ability and what does that mean in terms of human potential and what we could really achieve if we lived outside of the box a little bit of what we can imagine the world can be.
0: Yeah, it is so fascinating because from what I understand, right, I mean, at various points in history, a well-rounded liberal arts education was absolutely The goal and being able to not just do, understand and do math and science and read and write, but to make art and music and perform and dance. And that's all just chucked out the door these days to make a buck.
1: It's chucked out the door. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Greeks, they really, it was like the five pillars of, you know, it's geometry, math, music. You had to understand music. And I think geometry and art are, you know, there's a lot of overlap there, obviously. But yeah, you had to have all of that knowledge to really reach a full potential as a human being. And I don't know at what point we kind of devolved Mm. into the point we are now, where most people, it's like, you're just kind of getting through the day, and then you're getting through the week, and then you're getting through the year, and then you're getting through your life. And at the end of it, What were you rushing through, you know? Yes. But it's really how our society is set up in capitalism. I like to define capitalism as it takes everything magic in the world and turns it into landfill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the same applies for human resources, really, like they Mm. call it human resources. But people Mm. and their potential is reduced to something very basic, really.
0: Well, it's, it's this idea that on some level, somehow we have decided as a society on some level that creating money is more important than creating, right? Like, why did right. money trump making anything else?
1: Yeah. And it wasn't always like that. If you look at indigenous cultures, I mean, yeah. they provided for their communities mm-hmm. by them all being involved in making or gathering or hunting, you know, mm-hmm. various the things that we need to survive, which is... Food, water, shelter community. So sure there was barter and they had resources, but now we have sort of substituted money for all those things. And it, it removes most people from really participating in their life to a certain extent.
0: A hundred percent. Because I think we're all born, right? With that desire to express ourselves creatively and artistically. And it somehow, some way we've created a system that somehow socializes that out of us so that by the time you're in second or third grade, I mean, no kid wants to admit that they're an artist or it's like you ask yeah. a 5-year-old, you know, are they an artist? Absolutely, yes, I'm an artist. You know, you <laughs> yeah. ask a you ask a 15-year-old are they an artist? They go, "Well, yeah, I well, won't, you know, ma- man maybe. Well, no, I'm an influencer." <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, and, yeah. What what can I make money as, you know, because right. we raised kids to believe that that trumps everything. That's more important than anything. But yeah, you're right. As kids, we're all creative. We're kind of born that way. So yeah, what is it that where it's sort of discouraged at some point? And that does overlap into this idea of having an art career and commerce and making art. And how do you quantify what you're making and how much you're selling it for all those questions? How does that live in a a commercial society?
0: Right. How do you as an artist reconcile the arguably opposing facts that on one hand, you want to make art that's pure and true and in spite of its economic potential, while also figuring out a way to pay your bills. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. how do you reconcile those two things? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And every year's a challenge. And it's funny. It's like people think, you know, once you've made it or you have a name or you have a style, or you have a gallery, like, oh, okay, that's it. You've reached that point, and then it's just like smooth sailing, you know? But <laughs> that's just a point on a life mm-hmm. of ups and downs. So mm-hmm. from the time I entered art school, which was like, oh, my God, 1988 to 94. I'm that, a, hey, by 94. the
0: way, I, I'm a 1988 high school graduate, born 1972. So we are pure Gen oh my X, God. you and me. Yeah,
1: yeah, you know what I'm talking about. There was no internet. There was no... no No, I didn't even get trained in computers in art school, you know? And then by the time I got out of grad school, the web had just started. So all of the things I learned of like, this is how you build an art career. This is how you approach gallery. You know, all of that information was completely obsolete Mm. by the time I graduated. And it really kind of becomes obsolete now, like every three to four years. Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. The speed of so-called innovation or technology or what have you, things are made obsolete or redundant and in, in the, the half-life of things is like off the charts now. It's like yeah. Crazy. So
1: like Instagram changed, you know, first it was the web and it was like, oh, you know, okay, now I can reach more people. And then Instagram kind of changed the game. It gave you more exposure, but also ruined a lot of galleries and changed the format of how you buy in sell art and Mm -hmm. who's buying and selling art. Like, there's a lot more people buying art now than I would say when I entered art school, when it was sort of more of a niche. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, people that would buy original art, it was not as many. But it's also, there's an expectation now from so many people selling art on Instagram that things should be $50. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, yeah, it is such a fascinating conversation because I mean, and you've seemingly done from what I could tell done a great job of kind of diversifying yourself and offering your art at different price points and different mediums and different ways that people can access your world and access your art, no matter their socioeconomic status. And isn't that a beautiful thing, right? And that's also a testament to technology. The fact that we can do print-on-demand and, and oh, manufacture yeah. things so inexpensively.
1: Definitely. And that was always a conscious intention of mine. I always wondered when school. I, I mean, I've always loved music and been really into music. And I always kind of wondered why you could experience music and buy a record and go to a concert and that kind of thing for 15, 20 bucks. But you couldn't really experience art the same way in terms of like having something that you could take away from a show. I mean, most gallery shows are free, but you can't buy anything there, really. So I thought it should be more available, either, you know, prints or T-shirts or this kind of thing for people that want to kind of like live with the art a little bit. It shouldn't be such an exclusive thing. I mean, sure, for... Original art, that's one context. But I always like the idea of broadening that availability. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when I was a kid, it's like, yeah, my mom had books Salvador Dali and Gustav Klimt and Egon Schiele. And that's how I got a lot of knowledge about art was through books, you know. So it always seems silly that you would make your work so exclusive that only a few people would be able to experience it in a few cities.
0: Well, and it's, I mean, let's face it, right? I mean, every museum from the dawn of time have had a gift shop. I mean, essentially (laughs) you're offering, you know, like (laughs) now artists can create their own gift shops. I mean, like-
1: Oh, I know. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I have a lot of collectors now that are like, they collect in a range of like, $100 100 to $500 and that's doable for, you know, like a final limited edition toy or a print or a $25 t-shirt. And so, yeah, it's not just like the big, you know, original art collectors. That's another level, but those people come and go. They sometimes stop collecting and they collect different things. So you really have to like diversify how you're going to, you know, how you're going to make a living. You can't just depend on like, well, maybe I'll sell some stuff at a gallery like that is not a viable business strategy on its own.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, kind of from the consumer product side, I mean, the classic example of that is Harley Davidson. I mean, what's such a coveted thing a harley davidson and yet not many people can afford a classic harley davidson but yet okay they can buy that keychain or they can buy that t-shirt or they could buy and arguably harley davidson's merch program is worth more than their motorcycle business because people are buying into that world you know that culture
1: yeah and it's a culture and a lifestyle there's a philosophy with what they are selling i mean I'm not going to debate whether it's true or not, but it's about this idea of of freedom on the road and getting out and road trip, you know, easy rider, counterculture. I don't know if it's counterculture anymore, but that was the original intent of it. So I think, yeah, for me, as much as I don't like to think about the idea of branding, I certainly have a message Through my art. And so, if someone's going to be able to buy a poster or t shirt and think about what I'm trying to say Mm
0: -hmm.
1: by looking at that poster or t shirt, like that's fine by me. That's great.
0: Right. Yeah. That word branding is an interesting one because I mean, it's, I guess, at its worst, right? It's the most contrived, commercialized (laughs) kind of capitalistic strategy to make a buck or whatever. But on the other hand, if it's happening in an honest, sincere way with real integrity, you are just being who you are and that reputation emerges in an honest way. And, and so, yeah, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I wonder if you, you might hate this question, but I mean, if you pulled a hundred of your collectors and you says, ask them, what is the essence of uh, Camille's brand? I wonder what they would say. You know, what do you think? they oh, would say?
1: That's a good question. I wonder what they would say because I always think I'm being very clear. And then when I hear other people, you know, <laughs> about what they're seeing. It seems like I'm being very obtuse. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. We all see different things, you know.
0: I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, clear as mud. Apparently, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Exactly. I think uh, I'm getting
1: less clear as I get older too. Because I, you and me both, I'm definitely man. getting more esoteric in what I'm exploring. You know, like right now, I'm just I'm in outer space. Like that's like literally. Yeah. I'm like what about that ocean on that? moon of Saturn, what's what's inside there? That's, right. you know, that's like where my brain is now.
0: <laughs> well, so there's just so much I want to chat about. I mean, you know, like one of the amazing things about your world as it has evolved, as it continues to evolve, is that it lends itself. And we've already touched on maybe from a product standpoint, or at least some of the other things you're doing to kind of offer your art in different accessible ways. But clearly, you've been in publishing. I mean, you've been on the New York Times bestseller lists and stuff. I mean, and clearly your work lends itself to all kinds of interesting opportunities for movies and animation and stuff. I mean, like as you think about that, where do you see your world going five, 10 years from now? I mean, I know you're doing a lot of cool stuff, I think, in the NFT space as well. I mean, where do you want your world to go?
1: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned animation because that's kind of really a lifelong dream that I struggle. I have constantly struggled to make happen. I've had a million meetings with Disney (laughs) over the years. I I had a meeting at Netflix that I thought for sure. I've had friends that work in animation and I've written treatments. And every time it's like, they'll give me advice like, well, you really need a book first because then they can't change anything. You have the story, you have the characters. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. I'll do a book. So I wrote and illustrated a book specifically to make an animation project out of that's called the cabinet of doctor decay. Mm-hmm. And now when I got to pitch to Netflix it was very very exciting. Walked in there with and I had I had been working with the stop motion animation team for mm-hmm. a few years. So I had like tons of background art. I had maquettes, we had a little snippet of animation done. We had a lot of stuff. I totally thought like this is a slam dunk, you know, but I'm not <laughs> pitching in Hollywood is not my skill. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And I don't know how it's done, and I don't know what the expectations are. I mean, I can build worlds, and I told them that. But they passed on it, and I got super depressed after that about the whole project. Because the whole thing, like writing the book and illustra- – it was like over 100 illustrations – you know, publishing. It took like probably eight years to see that part. And during that time, I was working with the stop motion animators who's brilliant. Martin Meunier, he works on Coraline. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a brilliant stop motion animator, but I couldn't afford because I was personally just paying for the pre-production part. And it just got to a point I couldn't really afford to go forward. So I needed someone to really give me some money. (laughs) (laughs) to make it happen. So anyways, yeah, I was a little devastated after that because I was like, well, I don't know where I go from here other than making it myself, which seems insane. But I don't know, that might eventually be the way to do it. But that's the dream of like, okay, before I die, I want my art to move and talk and tell a story because it kind of took me writing that book to realize, like, oh, I'm a storyteller. Like, I didn't realize it all those years. I just, you know, do a gallery show, but I would always want to, like, give the characters a backstory. I've never been, you know, a formalist where it's like, it's. I'm just about the paint and the color, man. Like, it's always kind of been a little bit more narrative-based, mm-hmm. figurative narrative-based. So, yeah, I was kind of excited to be like, you know, maybe I'm really a filmmaker that's, I'm like, a painter but maybe i'm really a filmmaker like my dad but then yeah i was like okay i don't know if i am a filmmaker like my dad because it just requires a lot of dealing with other people with money is difficult where with painting i can just decide what i'm going to do yeah. and do it and go forward and it just takes my own labor so that part even though i like the idea of collaborating I think it would be a struggle to maybe collaborate with people that would tell me no or to change something that would be like, uh-uh.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. No, <laughs> no, that, that's, the, that's so true, right? I mean, when you're painting, when it's just you and the yeah. canvas, right? I mean, you are the master of your domain and yes. you answer to no one and that's mm-hmm. pure freedom.
1: It's the hardest thing, but it's the most rewarding thing, you know? Mm. Whenever I start a show or series of paintings, I don't really know how I'm going to do it or what I'm going to do. And there's a point, I would say around 70, when the work is about 75% done, when I know it's going to be good. And there's that point where it's like, I don't even know how I did that, really. Like, there was collaboration with some other force, for sure. And that part to me is really exciting. That's the most exciting
0: part. So that's an interesting point to segue, I think, into a question I wanted to ask eventually anyway, which is if indeed, and I agree, that not just you, but so many artists are sort of tapped into your conduit of some kind, right? Yes. Connecting to some kind of, I don't know, supernatural force, whatever. And so part of that, is about being able to be present and really plug in or unplug and plug in or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? And you were born and raised in Southern California, basically LA, Orange County. And yet now you live in the Pacific Northwest in a pretty kind of, I'm guessing, rural kind of area. How essential, how important was that move for you to be able to tap in and center and really plug into that force. I mean, have you noticed that your environment impacts your work in a positive way?
1: Yeah, you know, it was incredibly important making that move, which I did in 2007. I was born in Los Angeles, but I spent half of my childhood up in these woods in Northern California. My grandpa had built this cabin up here and that's where my mom grew up. So I spent every summer leaving the suburbs down from Southern California and spending the entire summer up here in the woods. So yeah, at some point after I, you know, I made a name for myself in LA, I could do work remotely. People would just contact me through email to do projects. And I thought, you know, I wonder if I could move away from LA. You know, I was born there. I've spent a lot of time there, but I realized like I... I'm a complete introvert. It's hard for me to be around a lot of people because I kind of absorb energy from everything and it's overwhelming.
0: Right. The curse of an empath, right?
1: (laughs) Kind of. I mean, it sounds cliche, but I require a lot of solitude. Mm -hmm. It's really the only way to get to that place that I'm talking about Mm -hmm. where you become just sort of part of the creative ether. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could do in LA, but it was a more frenzied, the speed of it it was faster and it, I would say it was a little more surface and when I moved here I was able to kind of I guess go a little deeper into what that creativity really means and what that feels like and I realized like oh yeah no I need like a lot of solitude it does not bother me I don't get bored out here I mean <laughs> It's like endlessly fascinating actually to live in an intact ecosystem. It really is because the insects are varied in plenty. There's like 500 different mushroom species just in like one square mile. I don't know. It's just, it's incredibly diverse. And you realize like how much of that ecological diversity has been lost just in the past hundred years or so Mm -hmm. by Human development. Anyway, so yeah, it's been really interesting and great for creativity. And I'm afraid for younger people that they're getting farther and farther away from any kind of free brain space with digital devices constantly in your presence. I mean, if the power goes out for longer than a few hours, you really start to get into that headspace, but that's the only time.
0: Yeah, you're hitting on so many interesting things and important things as well. I mean, not the least of which is like, what is the impact of technology on our kids these days? I heard a friend of mine who's in marketing actually (laughs) was telling me about a research project that she had read. This research indicated that Generation Alpha is saying that given a choice, they would prefer to plug into a matrix-like experience rather than live in real life. And I was like, holy fuck, like that's what's happened, right? Like now we have a generation that's like looking at this as a legitimate choice. It's like, well, I could live in real life IRL, or I could maybe possibly plug into a metaverse virtual reality experience, Man, I'd rather do that. And it's like Well,
1: we've created a world for those kids where in real life is scary, yes, depressing.
0: Yes, well, there's that. Of course. I don't blame, yeah. Wow. No, no, that's the next layer yeah. of it, right? It's like, who could blame them? I mean, <laughs> on a certain level, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: but I know yeah. it is scary. I am an avid star watcher. I love gazing at the sky, and I, I live in a dark sky area. What that means is there's no light pollution, and you can see... Actually see the universe? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you can see the Milky Way. And I kind of came to a weird realization that – you know, because in LA, I loved like, oh, I love when the full moon is out, but you couldn't really ever see any other stars. And it made me realize that if you're not aware of that, of how big the universe is by just looking at it, being able to see it, you're not thinking about it. Right. And if you're not aware of how beautiful and diverse – nature and the earth, which, you know, is, they used to be the one and the same thing. If mm-hmm. you're not seeing it, you're not going to know it's there and you're not going to care about it. Right. So I think these kids that are growing up not experiencing those things, how would they ever know that it's beautiful and that it's mystical and that it's magical and it's worth saving because they're not seeing any of it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there was a time in my life I was on the board of an environmental organization and the whole thing was, I was like, guys, until you make your very important work relevant to kids of color in the city who've never seen a tree in their lives, good fucking luck. Your rich white donors are dying off and we've got to make nature and wilderness and the ecosystem relevant and important to kids of color in the city who maybe yeah. not enjoyed it, you know?
1: Yeah. And the only people I see really doing that on an entire community-wide level are indigenous communities. Yeah, Like up where I live, the Yurochs, who are on the Klamath River, they just released four condors Mm -hmm. back into their... They have a condor release program. They built this whole area, like a station to monitor them and just Mm -hmm. release them. And that's a really important bird for their culture. But their entire message is you have to take care of the land and the land will take care of you. Mm. And that message never fucking changes. Honestly, (laughs) the history of humans and planets, like that's a pretty basic. Yeah. Enduring lesson. And it floors me that people think it's optional that we could live that progress and technology and, the future and the modern Western world—all of these catchphrases—that you could have all of those things without a basic, healthy planet,
0: and right. you can't. No, you just can't. Yeah, and that somehow it's just going to take care of itself. Yes. Right? Like, oh no, it'll be fine. No, we're the stewards. It's someone of the planet. else's
1: problem, or You're it's poor right. people's problem in yeah. poor countries, and that's—I yeah. don't know. I like to just blame capitalism.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> see, see, see. <laughs> well, any more to the point, this idea of just fucking greed, human greed. Yes. Because it's like, even if, you know, it's like without getting into some like whole like thing about economics, it's like whether it's capitalism or socialism or whatever, it's like human greed, man. Like, how do we deal with that? But you talked a little bit about the importance of your move there in terms of having some solitude to focus on your work. How does silence play into making your work? I mean, are you able to sort of work and listen to music? Do you prefer silence when you work? What's your sonic requirements <laughs> when you're making your I work? I
1: have very elaborate sonic requirements. Yeah, I want to hear really it. Let's glad let's hear you it. Asked this question. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes silence is important. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't like any people around me flapping their lips. So I've tried to have assistance now and again, but it's like, I just, I don't like anyone in my space when I'm working. So during the day, I have... Certain sonic requirements, and that's usually music without lyrics that's repetitive and meditative. Mm-hmm. So, Ravi Shankar is like on mm-hmm. constant repeat in the daytime, or mm-hmm. I have a classical station I listen to mm-hmm. because that as well. I don't, I won't get lost in like the lyrics of right. what's happening.
0: Right. right. Yep.
1: Ravi Shankar, that's kind of the easiest. Those songs are like 15 or 20 minutes long, and I can have even one song on repeat the whole day and Mm -hmm. like I won't even notice because it's really just it becomes more of a pattern Mm -hmm. but it's Mm -hmm. not an obtrusive pattern Mm -hmm. to listen to Mm -hmm. now at night when I'm on like a deadline for something I need to conjure up rock and roll energy at night Mm -hmm. to like (laughs) kick it into high gear. Yeah. I'm not, like, a stimulants person at all. So I have to kind of, like, okay, Camille, like, let's get some energy. So at night, we turn the rock and roll up loud. So we'll do, like, Queens of the Stone Age, or we'll do... We, I mean, we do Bowie constantly, but we'll do... Actually, Tool is really good for, like, right repetitive.
0: Yeah. And also rock
1: and roll. They have, like, a meditative quality to a lot mm-hmm. of their songs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'll do Smashing Pumpkins. Like, anything that's, like and like, you know, whole, like I'll go like mm. aggressive female rock mm. and roll too, but it's that aggressive male energy. I want to say that I need like at night, I'll have a shot of tequila <laughs> and I'll turn and It's like, okay, I need those electric guitars. And I need like that frenzy of, I don't know. It gives me energy at night, but I cannot listen to that during the day. If I'm working, like, it's just not, it's really annoying. And so I don't know. It must be I think at night, because you have the moon influence and everyone's frenzied minds collectively just dies down, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's calmer at night. And then I can like just bring that frenzied energy. like I can control that. In the day, I feel like there's too much energy just happening, so I just need to keep it really chill.
0: I love that you have a whole sonic strategy. That's that's oh, yeah, so
1: absolutely. cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in it means, Like certain shows I'll keep track, like actually write... I write these little, God, what was I calling them? They're kind of like magic spells where I will write down, like if something works one day to bring the creative muse, I'll write it down. And so it'll, because I always start with a ritual of going to the studio and I thank it for providing the space. And then, you know, I like the incense and it's different scents. Right now it's Palacento. And then I'll do that. I'll have the water, fire, earth, air, all those. And then I'll select certain kinds of music. So actually, like in the winter when it's raining, it's Chelsea Wolf or Fleet Foxes. Like that's Mm -hmm. sort of more contemplative and I'll write down, like, I'll write down what I'm listening to and the formula, I guess, because Ooh. I like to repeat that and see if it brings me back to that same headspace. And it does.
0: Right. So
1: some shows are like, okay, I specifically listen to, like, 70s Rock for this show. Or I specifically listen to 70s Folk for this one. Or or 90, you know, ni- this one's, like, Hole and PJ Harvey's.
0: Right, right. So yeah, I
1: guess it's a very specific sonic magic work. <laughs> <For
0: sure. laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, because music's a drug, right? And it's like, okay, mm, what yeah. do I need right now to do whatever it is I got to do? What drug oh. is going to get me to that thing?
1: <laughs> really? Yeah, 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 yeah. As far as drugs go, I'm a lightweight with most everything. So I have to re- <laughs> Well, but to it's so funny music. too, because I
0: mean, you sort of mentioned, I mean, you talked about instrumental music and, and kind of what works and what doesn't work in the day. And it's like, I was thinking about myself as well within that context, because given what I'm working on, for example, I love jazz music, huge jazz fan, right? Yeah. But I cannot listen to jazz music if I'm doing certain kinds of work because oh, I'm no. engaged intellectually into the music and I'm just distracted, right? Exactly. So yeah, you need, oh, I need something, yeah. right, right, right. Classical yeah, music yeah, works yeah. great. And yeah,
1: writing, <laughs> I can't listen to anything when I'm writing. Like right, it's right. impossible. That's gotta be a
0: silent <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are you working on right now? I know you've got a lot going on and I believe you have a new show coming up. Do you not?
1: Yes. So I have a show in Seattle opening July 9th at Rock LaRue Gallery, which I've mm-hmm. showed with her really from the beginning when she opened her gallery. And so that'll be really exciting to go back. I haven't had a solo show with her for a while And this show is a little bit of an extension of the last show I did at Mary Karnowski, which was called Obsidian Butterfly. Mm -hmm. But it's really kind of like an homage and a love letter to the Pacific Ocean and the Mm -hmm. powers of it. So this show, I was like, yeah, I want to keep doing this ocean thing because I'm finding it really fascinating. What I was thinking about is how we're all like, if you live by the ocean or if you visit the ocean, there's a certain comfort that comes from going to the ocean and staring mm-hmm. at the ocean. You feel that sense of eternity and calm and like, okay, everything's going to be okay. And I was like, what is that? And I was thinking about the elements of water and the ocean and how they have sort of these feminine connotations in terms of like being a vessel for emotion. We sort of like put all our hopes and wishes and emotions into the ocean. So as it made me think about, because there are certain planets, in particular, there's a couple different moons around Saturn and I think Jupiter, I think Enceladus and Cassiopeia, but I'm probably getting that wrong because I can't remember anything. But one of them is basically it's an ocean inside of the planet with like a crust of ice around it. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to look up the name of this ocean and it seemed like no one has named it yet. So I named it Mary Medusa, which I don't know if you ever looked at. A map of the moon, but they name all of the craters are like Mary, this, they're like the sea of tranquility and the sea of this and that. So the show is called The Nereids of Mary Medusa, and Nereids are benevolent water spirits. It's from Mm. the Greek, some of their gods and goddesses, but they're benevolent. They're not, they don't have any of the connotations of like sirens and that, you know, lure sailors to their death. Mm -hmm. They're just the benevolent ones. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, what are these benevolent water spirits? On other planets, and if a planet is mainly ocean, would it be a more emotional planet rather than a rational mm. planet? Mm. That's what I was thinking. So I've sort of invented these water spirits that are involved in the act of creating other planets with music. So they have all these wow. instruments they've built, and they're sort of like levitating these planets, and they're like living in shells and doing spells. <laughs> you
0: know? Never leave the so, woods, yeah. Camille, never, because by the way, like this <laughs> magical connection you have is just so awesome. Like, I love this. This show sounds incredible.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. I was like, God, this is so esoteric. I don't know how anyone would write a press release about it because it doesn't relate <laughs> to anything on this planet. But I'm just like, in the past couple of years, I was like, I've got to go off planet because when I first got out of art school, it was like, I do like, you know, social, political commentary work, but it's like, I don't know what else to say that I haven't already said about this planet. So maybe let's see what else is going on on the ocean planets, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, I, I, I love that too, right? Because on a certain level, hopefully that will remind us your work, this new show may help remind us that we're not the only planet in the galaxy and we're not the only planet in the universe. And I'm sorry, but of course there's life elsewhere. Of course. I mean, like, how is this even a debate?
1: This makes me insane because also the planets are alive. They just move at a slower pace and their heartbeat is like once every 25,000 years or something. But if you sped up, Their rotation, like there would be a song. It would be like every 100 million years, the song would repeat.
0: Well, and just just the sheer fact that the universe is expanding proves that there's life. (laughs) If it wasn't alive, it wouldn't be expanding.
1: (laughs) We're just, it's like we blinded ourselves. I don't understand what's wrong with humans because. The whole thing is alive. It's filled with creativity. It's filled with amazing things. I mean, it rains diamonds on, I don't know what planet, Neptune or something. I think Neptune also smells like farts. I read that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, we're
1: like I'm going to go there and get diamonds.
0: I mean, no, I, I, I don't remember. Whoever
1: diamonds <laughs> that smell like
0: hearts. On <laughs>
1: but it's fascinating, and it's like, yeah, we're so myopic these days in what we give our attention to in yeah. terms of. Politics. It's like everyone just gets the same message through their device and then starts repeating the message. So all I can think is that we're under the spell of a bad wizard. And you know what I mean? Mm. I don't know how we're going to break this spell. Well, my
0: whole theory is, it's not theory, but it's a, you know, one, one theory I have, I guess, is that (laughs) exactly what you're saying is for me, proof that indeed at some point along the way. We have been invaded by a superior life form who has assimilated among us and turned us against each other and has turned us against ourselves. And we're the fish in the water that they're just turning up the water. They're cooking us slowly. We don't, it's so imperceivable, <laughs> right? And we're just getting yeah. cooked, you know, yeah. but we're just below our level of perception. Yeah. And of course, a superior yes. life form is going to be able to do that. They're going to get all of our money. They're going to get all of our resources. I mean, look, I mean, I'm sorry. For, for I'm sorry, but like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, don't tell me those guys aren't part alien. I mean, they're really good at math. They all want to get to Mars.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Aliens are good. Math. Um, definitely. Obviously.
0: They got <laughs> no, all the money. I
1: totally agree with you. Yeah. I totally agree with you on some level. As insane as some people might think we're going into like tinfoil hat territory. But I kind of agree. I feel like there's some malevolent force that is at work here. And I'm not talking religion, but like literally some kind of weird, I don't know. It feels like we went wrong somewhere and no one can seem to like understand or explain it. And it kind of feels like Babylon too. Like we're all speaking different languages. And at one point, nobody will be able to understand anyone else or have compassion for anyone else.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And sometimes I read weird things just because like, what if that was true? Like, that'd be so interesting. <laughs> but I, I did read in some weird, like, you know, people that know about aliens, that like the earth is a very special place because not all planets are like earth in terms of the biodiversity. So a lot of other alien or whatever <laughs> from other planets might be interested in earth. And I was like, well, that doesn't sound wrong. Like, It is a very biodiverse place, you know?
0: We have a lot of water too. I mean, a lot of these aliens are coming from planets that are very dry. They need water. We got water. They're thirsty. (laughs) They're thirsty lizard people. I mean, you know.
1: I need to take a bath. I've just been taking dust baths on Mars. Yeah. And this idea that we're going to colonize Mars is a little silly. It's like, just, it's easier to just. Take care of this planet. Like, that's where he's.
0: We have the best planet.
1: Like, why the fuck do you want to live on Mars? (laughs) I don't know. We have the best planet. We know how to plant trees. Like, we know how to do the things that take care of the planet. And all the indigenous cultures know how to do the things because they've been doing it for thousands of years. And I don't know what went wrong with Western civilization. They just said, we're not going to do it that way anymore. And it's like, well, your run has not been very long. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) You did it wrong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. It's like, guys, you've been doing this for like five minutes. Like, what the fuck? Get over yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Don't be all confident. If you're interested, I'll share with you my theory. So, building on this, right? Like, because I've been trying to understand how the hell racism and bigotry exists on this planet. Because we're not born that way, right? Right. And yet, yeah, and I'm speaking in very broad strokes here, but if you look at the indigenous cultures on the planet, while they might have been competitive one tribe to another or one community to another whatever, largely, you know, this might be stereotypical, but, but largely indigenous folks have been very much more sort of sustainable in their approach to living and and so yes. there is this notion that clearly these folks were sort of born of this planet, are of this planet, and are respectful of this planet as a result of this, right? So, But then you have this other Homo sapien-like creature come from the North, presumably, who does not have much melatonin and shows up on your shore and is all about exploitation and uh, subjugation, and they have superior firepower. And the so-called white man has then colonized this planet. So so I'm trying to understand like how the fuck that happened, right? Like where did the white man come from? And like, what? And then it hit me one day that this, this is <laughs> yeah. just a theory, could be, you know, may have some merit, probably doesn't, no, but like just that. a thing. <laughs> it's Go like, on. so you know how Great Britain shipped all of their prisoners to Australia? Yes. Okay. So that's the premise for this story. So there is a utopian planet Earth-like utopia elsewhere in the universe, and one day this evil popped up. Was, by the way, all the people on that planet are white. But one day there was an evil, a greed bubbled up somehow, and the rulers of that world realized that this cancer had to be removed from the planet because it would ruin their utopia. So they decided to ship their evildoers off to another planet and found Earth. And decided to just put them on Earth. And so, is you know.
1: It's Battlestar Galactica.
0: <laughs> oh, is that what it is? Okay. It
1: sounds like Battlestar Galactica.
0: <laughs> All right. I knew, I knew there was merit to it. <laughs> no.
1: I mean, yeah. Because you do want to make sense of it. You're like, what happened? Like, what happened?
0: How, you know, yeah. What happened? How the fuck did happened? it happen? Yeah. yeah.
1: How did we get here? And how bad is it going to get? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like
0: how is it that we just don't understand that we're all the same, man? I mean, we're not all the same, but we are all. The you
1: same. know, maybe we're not. Maybe you're right. Maybe it's like there's a seed of some I don't know what bat. You know, it just seems to me like it's two different types of brain or something. There's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. clearly compassion and love and and taking care of the earth and maybe a more Feminine approach, maternal caring, Mm. caregiving. Mm. And then there's the other. And I don't know if it's the age of rationality where it started, where it's progress and building and logic. You know, it's this other mentality, but there's no compassion for anything for animals, for land, or for people. They're all treated as resources. And that's what they're called. And I think that viewpoint, it's like the seed of our destruction, really, as a species. And why would you build a world that looks like that anyway? A prison planet. Why would you build that?
0: I blame Judeo-Christianity, quite frankly. <laughs> you know, it's or like, so, you yeah. know, it's <laughs> like it's like this notion that God gave man dominion over the planet. I mean, who the
1: fuck? The, yeah, and over know? the animals where even animals are here just for us to use because I don't know, God will replace them. I don't know. Well, well yes, God's no. coming.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Anyway.
1: <laughs> My sister is actually very religious. And I was like, well, yeah, like, is Jesus going to come back? Wasn't he supposed to come back and like, you know, help stuff out? She was like, oh, no, he already came and went. <laughs>
0: and I <was> like, <laughs> he came, he checked out. He he's came. like, oh, fuck this place.
1: <laughs> yeah. He came and then he left. He's like, mm, no. And I was like, what the fuck?
0: By the way, I love planet, that notion. Like, I love that notion that important. that we're so fucked that even Jesus came back to say, Yeah, no, that's not their past salvation. <laughs> like, I'm done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, even though I don't, obviously it was kind of a joke that I was asking. I was floored. I was like, Well, I didn't hear that. Like,
0: now what are we gonna do? <laughs> it is interesting, all the answers that they can come up with. You know, my sister happens to be pretty religious as well. And It's funny because the way they rationalize and can justify or whatever, it's it's a fascinating calculus. It is (laughs) because
1: they have answers. And I know, like, I think she finds the answers comforting where I just find answers disturbing, you know?
0: Well, no, no. But what you're hitting on is really interesting because some of us are just more comfortable with not knowing. And so many people have to have the answers, you know? It's like, oh, I got to know. It's like, no, I love the mystery.
1: Oh, yeah. And that's the whole thing about the universe and that it's eternal. And I don't actually believe in the Big Bang. I don't think it could start from nothing. It's an eternal thing that we can't really even comprehend it. And that's what all like ancient religions say. It's like there's no words for it. There's no way to comprehend it with our tiny human minds because it's eternal, you know? Mm. It was just always there. Like I think that's really fascinating because what does that mean? You know? But, yeah, it's easier to grasp the idea that it was created out of, you know, some force created it, but that's also a physics problem of, like, you can't really create something from nothing.
0: <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> so, unless you're God. You use a black hole, then you can't. <laughs> right. yeah, that's
1: the only way. Yeah, I think the questions are fascinating and I I like that I have time to think about them. I feel like some weird philosopher, but I don't have any answers. Well, listen,
0: you happen to be talking to somebody who has spent a lot of time out of doors and living and there was a a time in my life where I actually lived off the grid for about a year uh, in nature. And uh, so I totally get it, man. I mean, I totally get it. And it's like the greatest year of my life because I got to see that- It's all happening and it's all good and we're just part of this universe unfolding, you know, and for me, it just was so settling, you know, and yeah.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, after your mortal body rots into the ground, like it's going to go on. It will be fine. The earth will be fine. We won't destroy it. I don't think we're that powerful. And that is comforting, you know, like I don't care if I die, I just don't want all the redwoods to die, you know.
0: Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great poem, I'll send it to you. Well, he didn't really consider himself a poet, he considered himself a rhymer, but there was a guy named Robert Service who actually became hugely was a very commercially successful writer during the, this was the late, well, it was during the gold Rush era, really. So what was that? What is that? Late 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century? Anyway. Yeah, like 1890 um, yeah.
1: or something.
0: And so he wrote this poem called, because uh, he lived in Alaska for a while and ended up writing all these poems and based on the characters that he was meeting there and stuff. Oh, but cool. he wrote this poem called The World's All Right. Okay. And it's amazing because he sort of takes in all of this stuff we're talking about. It's like, listen, a million planets come and go like the world's all right. All of these levels of, of existence and we're just this little part of it. And that's the beauty of it. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really beautiful. I have I'll to send check it to you. Out. You'll
0: dig it. You'll dig yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. These are like big topics and big questions and big Thoughts to have is like, yeah, how small are you? How small is your footprint in human history or in the history of the universe? You know, it's nothing. So then, what is the point, really, except to maybe experience everything with a complete state of awe? Like, live in your life, don't rush through it.
0: Yeah, I'm Googling right now. (laughs) <laughs> oh, boy, I was trying to find this poem. I thought I'd just read it because it's so good.
1: Oh, yeah, do if you can find uh, it.
0: Let's see here. Where is it?
1: So when did you live off grid? What year?
0: College, 1991. I lived in northern Manitoba, Canada, just south of the Arctic Circle and 120 oh. miles southwest of the polar bear capital of the world, Churchill, Manitoba.
1: Oh, cool.
0: And lived like grizzly Adams.
1: Did you have to hunt for? Yeah, Christmas? yeah.
0: We, we carried a gun every day. Because there were bears, polar yeah. bears, black bears, but we we hunted.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no store. There's no Trader Joe's.
0: That's that's right. And so we, you know, <laughs> thankfully lived on a river that the fish was so plentiful.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: But then you know we augmented our protein diet with the duck and geese and ptarmigan, and we ended up getting a bull moose, which gave us meat for our winter. Yeah. But for some reason, the stupid poem, I can't find it. So, anyway, so I'll send yeah, it Google to you. Google <laughs>
1: scrubbed it. It's like, this is too powerful. We must scrub it it's from, too the, powerful, from the man. world wide web. Ooh, we'll wait take a minute. What, what, did I find
0: this here? Did I find it? Oh, boy. Anyway, whatever. We're boring <laughs> okay. our listeners. We'll, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: we'll do We'll find it. We'll find but it. But I
0: totally yeah. get it, man. I mean, you know, and I, listen, I wish my gift to every person is that they would be able to find the time or the opportunity to be able to be for an extended time because it's it's isolation one thing and isolation in nature is another but it's got to be kind of an extended period
1: yeah the problem in our culture is yeah people are allowed their one week vacation and they have to drive or fly so people only ever get four days like when people even visit here i can always tell that they haven't spent a lot of time in nature because the first thing they say is are there any bears are you scared of the bears?" And it's like, the bears are not your problem in the world. It's <laughs> yeah, humans
0: are <laughs> yeah, the problem. Right. Bears that's, are
1: not the problem. Like, they're not. That's right. It's not. Yeah. But like you were saying about inner city kids, like, they don't ever have the opportunity, usually if they're of, of poor means, to spend any significant amount of time getting away in nature. And yeah, what a tragedy that we have set up our cities in a way where- You can't even really experience any of the beauty of nature within that city, you know?
0: Yeah, because it's a design decision, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And our lack of design, even that's a design decision. Because, I mean, I get that as we're social animals and on a certain level, we want to come together. That's great. But that doesn't mean that we should forego the natural aspects of our world, just because you're living in an urban setting. I mean, and that's part of the problem, too, because our politics are sort of divided around urban mentality versus a rural mentality. And, you know, and I get I understand why people that live in rural places don't want the government in their backyard or get in their pocket or in their bedroom or whatever. Like, I get that. And I also get why they need guns and want guns if you're living in a rural area.
1: Yeah, it's really two different ways of living. so. You're not going to have just one policy that makes sense for both at all. You know what I mean? Like in San Francisco, you can't have a wood-burning fireplace because of pollution, but that wouldn't make sense where I live, where there's less people and more trees, you know?
0: Guess what I found.
1: What'd you find? The poem. Are you going to read it? Do you want to
0: hear it? It's a little long.
1: Are you going to get the snippets?
0: Uh (laughs) Oh.
1: Can you read no, the whole gonna, thing. I'm going to read I the mean, whole thing.
0: You're going to love this it. This is
1: your podcast.
0: Yeah, you know what? I'm just going to email <laughs> it to. Just email <laughs> it. The
1: listeners can can read it on their own. They the can.
0: I'll post it in the link on the show yeah, it's notes. Homework. It's their homework. <laughs> yeah. Camille <laughs> Rose Garcia, you are the best. I am so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule and your incredible oh, practice sure, to come yeah. hang out, man, and and talk to yeah, me. Yeah.
1: It was fun. This
0: is super groovy. I hope you'll come back.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, because, you know, I don't talk to anyone up here. So this is like a little treat.
0: (laughs) Right on. right. Well, you are welcome anytime, my friend. You tell me if there's something on your mind, if there's something you want to get off your chest, if there's something you want to promote, you're always welcome. Open door policy. And that would be great. Are you coming to L.A. anytime soon? Do we get an opportunity to meet sometime soon?
1: Yeah, I'm actually coming on July, I think, 16th or 17th around there. And it's for Mary Karnowski Gallery. I feel like it's her 25th.
0: Oh, groovy. Anniversary.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm getting that right. It might be the twenty. So she's doing a group show. I'm going to have a piece in the show that's from the series,
0: mm-hmm. The
1: Nereids of Mary Medusa. So yeah, I'll be down for that that's my next LA trip. And then after that, I'm going to be going to Mexico city for the first time and I'll probably never come back.
0: (laughs) Well, I've only been to Mexico city once and it's so cool. And I was there for a short time. It's so massive. I think you're going to love it.
1: Uh, Yeah. I think I am too. I've been wanting to go for many years and then COVID kind of derailed the plans. So I'm very excited for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you definitely will want to spend a good amount of time there because there is there is so much. Are you do you have plans to come to DesignerCon?
1: Yeah, I think I will be coming this year. I don't think I'll be vending but I might be just signing and, mm-hmm. and doing maybe a talk or something, but I love coming to DesignerCon it's always always a good time. Plus, I haven't seen the Star Wars land yet at Disneyland so I gotta ah,
0: check that out. Yeah. So I well honestly I have not either. You know, I totally get it. It's like I'm bummed that I haven't been there yet. So yes, you gotta go from and yeah, I gotta yeah.
1: go. <laughs> I mean I've heard I've heard stories, so yeah, I'm very excited. But it's always a good time going to Designer Con. Yeah.
0: Right on, right on. Well, if you need a base camp, let us know. We're gonna have a big booth there. And if you just wanna hang a hat in our booth, oh, feel cool. free. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Are you going to be live podcasting from there or
0: No, you know, the live podcasting thing is is kind of more challenging than it's worth sometimes. I may go around with a microphone and just sort of do some sort of man on the street kind of uh, interviews that we will oh, right, right. we'll cut into something else later, but I just like to enjoy the show and hang out yeah. and we'd like to do some cool stuff in our booth, so so awesome. yeah, more to come. But maybe we'll see each other at uh, Mary Karnowski's gallery celebration in mid-July. Yeah. That would be amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go to that. So
0: Well, I am so grateful for your time, Camille. Thank you so much. And congratulations on everything. And please come back.
1: Thank you. I would love to. Thanks for having me.
0: Have a great night. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe. So you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Pajot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.